that these words will be at least a few words of something that you're longing to hear. Uh, we decided that we would make our talks a little bit briefer, that we would have them at this time of day, which is a shift for those of you who've come to Vipassana retreats. You're used to having the evening talk, and we felt actually that there might be a little bit more wakeful energy at this time of day, mm-hmm. um, and that might not be true. It might be true. This is the first day of being up high and traveling, and there's that way that when we've been so busy getting ready, getting everything ready, it's crazy how busy we have to get in order to not do things for a while. And and then we stop, and there's a kind of <clears throat> screeching to a halt, and the mind keeps going. It doesn't stop just because we did and came here and sat down. And it's a little bit like... Um, what happened to me in Zurich. I was in Zurich six weeks ago, and I had just arrived there, actually, with my friend I was traveling with, uh, with Jack, and we had we arrived at where we were staying, and it was near a lake, and he said, why don't you go for a swim? And I said, no, let's go for a bike ride first, because we'll see where we are, and get, I, I, you know, I wasn't familiar with that place at all ride around and get to know it. And um, and I had, you know, checked the gears a little bit and everything before getting on the, this bicycle. But some bicycles have, um, it's a disc brake in front so that when you squeeze the brake, it stops just like that. And my bicycle, and most of ours, if we squeeze the brake, you know, it stops. It isn't just, it sort of stops. It takes a moment. So, of course, when I was going down a hill, luckily I was turning, um, and I squeezed the brake, the bike stopped. But I kept going. Mm. And mm. it's kind of like when we come here, right? And But my body kept going. It wasn't just my mind. Your minds are just spinning, some of you. Some of you, of course, have dropped right in. But, uh, yeah, the body kept going. And I actually landed on my elbow, which got completely crushed. They call it the children's accident because skateboard, kids skateboarding and bicycling, you just, you know, it's just reflexive. You just put your elbow out. So um, within the first hour of vacation, yeah, I know, it was disappointing. There was this really moment of intense disappointment. But, you know, because the body takes care of us in that moment. There really wasn't any pain. I said, I'm fine, I'm fine. But within 24 hours, I'd had a pretty big surgery. And it's it's really healing, I'm just telling you, because you might see me doing, like, drawing. I'm supposed to draw with my left hand and write with my left hand as physical therapy. Because these muscles, this hurts a lot. So these muscles in the wrist all actually connect in to the elbow and come, and the pain is actually... Re- Anyway, there's a lot of wires and stuff in there. So if you, it's not that I'm really like drawing my friends or taking notes on every word they say. As as worthwhile of an activity as that would be, um, I just want, just I'm doing my physical therapy. If you see me doing, doing things like this, <clears throat> so I wanted to talk uh, not just about this momentum that the mind has. But how in the Buddhist path, 
this path of mindfulness, whether we approach it from Buddhist philosophy and psychology or from uh, a more secular mindfulness training perspective, the whole path is based on the premise that (coughs) full awareness, that finding ways to connect with, to become more familiar with, to stabilize and establish a sense of full awareness is the way to relieve all suffering. In the Satipatthana Sutta, which I do not have in front of me, um, but there's a wonderful... Do you have it right here? Oh. Anyway. uh, You know, there's a wonderful phrase, and it... I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says that, you know, all grief, all lamentation, all despair, all human sorrow, that with the establishment of mindfulness, all of this can be brought to an end. And so this full awareness encompasses the qualities of attentiveness and knowing and um, mindfulness itself, and then it's supported by other qualities. And... We're going to be this week speaking about both awareness itself, but some of the other qualities that that support awareness, like acceptance. And and that's what I want to focus on today, because I think when we stop and sit down with ourselves, the mind is quite mischievous, and it doesn't want to be still. And one of the ways that it entertains itself and keeps itself from feeling unemployed is that I mean, you kind of pointed to it this morning in your question, Mm -hmm. Nina, about, okay, so, you know, I can see my patterns, now what? Um, It generates a a fairly unfavorable view, often, of what we're up to at any given moment. There's a kind of constant comment, a stream of comment that follows our activities. And for most of us, the comments at least at the beginning of our practice, the comments are not, you know, really, really encouraging and supportive. Like, oh, I really like uh, the way you took a balanced meal on your plate, and I really, the way that you're eating mindfully, good going, Trudy. You know, that's not usually the kind of comment that's following us all day long. It's usually critical, and um, if not criticizing ourselves than quite happily and busily criticizing everyone else we see as they pass in front of us. So I wanted to um, I wanted to begin by talking about these mindfulness trainings that Grove mentioned last night. He talked about the precepts, right? And he talked about them in terms of the things that we refrain from doing. Here on retreat, you know, we refrain from we refrain from killing and stealing and um, acting out sexually and lying and you know getting totally stoned and drunk and stuff like that. We refrain from all of that here. We might do that all the time outside of here, but we refrain from that here. And I thought there's an and that's sort of you know your basic form, right? We do this so that we can live harmoniously in community with each other and have a prayer of really connecting with full awareness, which is very hard to do if you're busy doing those other things all the time. And there's a way that I wanted to really unpack 
a little bit more those mindfulness trainings as a pathway to the full awareness that is infused with a sense of acceptance or tenderness or what Ramdas calls loving awareness. And so the first training, which is to not kill, we can turn that around and talk about it as a practice of cherishing all life, of respecting and having reverence for all of life. And when we do that, then we can actually experience what Wes was talking about in his beautiful instruction this morning when he was talking about being alive and the sense of sitting here present and just alive with all life, alive with life itself, uh, that the life of all worlds is taking form as you mm. and me in that moment. And so we use our particular sense of this life, the you know Betsy, Michelle, Sita, Walter form of life, uh, the Trudy form of life, this particular life, and it becomes a bridge or an opening into all life, something much bigger. And this is a very inclusive kind of awareness that we can hold. And when we're really practicing this reverence or cherishing of life, then we don't try to annihilate aspects of ourself or our experience. We don't say, well, I actually hate this part of myself, so um, I'm going to just ignore it or get aggressive with it or uh, wish it would go away, right? Those are these strategies we have for disconnecting from the living experience of the moment, pushing it, pulling it, distracting ourselves, and so forth. But if we're really respecting the life of the moment, um, we will allow whatever is there to be there, simply because it's appeared and it's here. (coughs) Excuse me. So because it's here, what sort of relationship will we make with it? We have to make some kind of relationship with each experience. And the more peaceful and accepting, and we don't have to necessarily, you know, revere each experience, but the more accepting we are of it, it can just flow through us and then become just one of the rivers of experience that we have, of thought, of feeling, um, these places that we call the four foundations of mindfulness the rivers of sensation in the body, the rivers of feeling about experience, um, the feeling tone of each experience, the emotions and thoughts we have, um, that all these rivers join to create our sense of life itself and how our reality is put together by our responses and reactions to these experiences. So this cherishing of life is a kind of approach that we can take to to forming a relationship of respect with what arises, whatever it might be. We just can respect it enough to acknowledge, yes, this is here, and there's awareness of it, and this is where impermanence can be good news, 
because if it's something unpleasant, we know it will change. It's like the weather here. It reminds me of living in New England, which I did most of my adult life. And, you know, it, it, in New England, the temperature can drop 40 degrees in a day. That never happens in Southern California. It just doesn't. Uh, or here, it can be kind of hot and sunny, and you think, is it going to be hot out? And then, what, 20 minutes later, the rain sweeps across the meadow. So when we cherish all these manifestations of weather, of life, one wonderful thing that happens is that we become more liberated from our reactivity to each thing because it's our emotional reactivity that causes us suffering. I've had a lot of pain in the past six weeks. It's not much now, but, uh, you know, when we injure ourselves, we have pain. And if we have surgery, we have pain. It's just part of the experience. But there's, a, there's no choice about that. The body has pain. And some of you are in pain right now. It's just the nature of our bodies. But, but I really wasn't suffering because I was on vacation and I was determined to extract every little bit of happiness or joy possible from my vacation. So in spite of this, so there was the choice of suffering. And at, at one point, Jack said to me, you know, you don't, you aren't regretting anything, like the bike ride. <laughs> or, um, and I thought, well, no, because if I regret my life and what happened, well, first of all, it's not cherishing, right? That's a form of trying to annihilate an experience to regret it. And secondly, it's unpleasant. And thirdly, I only have a certain amount of vacation. It's not the way I want to spend it. We could say the same thing. We only have a certain amount of life. So is that the way we want to spend it? And we can't help it. Sometimes regrets come because we've, we regret things that have happened. But again, can that experience be respected, accepted, allowed to flow through us because it's part of the nature of being a human being? The second training is about not taking what isn't given. In other words, not stealing. And when we turn that one around, it's about what my first teacher, the Korean Zen master, Sansanim used to call enough mind. He said, Zen mind, all of Zen practice, Zen mind is enough mind. The sense that each moment is sufficient, that our life is enough, that there's nothing missing or lacking. And he really wasn't talking about maybe the particulars of having an overdrawn bank account or being on overdraft protection or whatever from mm-hmm. your bank. Um, you know, there might not be enough money, that's true. But he really meant each moment has exactly what we need to wake up because it's the moment we're living. It's this moment of truth happening. Life is unfolding and this is it. So when we can appreciate experience in that way, oh, this is what's given in this moment, not only do we liberate ourselves from the wish to, you know, beg, borrow, steal from anyone else's life or from some other life that we imagine we could be having, 
we're liberated from that, and then we're free to appreciate what's here. Now, here at Vaisitos, it's not that hard to appreciate what's here. These, I mean, I don't even know what it's called, these swaths of flowers strewn across the meadow. Or yesterday I went for a walk. We got here, I guess, a couple hours before you did. And I went for a walk up the southern part of the Continental Divide Trail. Some of you might have walked there, just up the hill through the trees. Then you can come down on the um, Icarus Trail. And just walking up there and seeing these ponderosa pines, we don't have to walk even to see them. But even the rocks, even just everything is being offered to us, freely given. The flowers, the sky, the aspen, the whatever it is that you know floats your boat when you look at it just gives you that feeling of <gasps> beauty or happiness. Uh, this is all being given to us. These uh, green bodhisattvas giving, 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 giving. Um, so we begin to appreciate what's being given to us. This morning I woke up a little before dawn with the altitude. You might notice it don't sleep quite as much. And and then the light started to come. And then once it started to get light, it seemed like it came pretty fast. And it was it was so exciting to see, oh my gosh, just what is this light just coming into the world, like becoming the world, the world becoming light. Uh, there's a beautiful Inuit poem. It says, uh, again, I don't have it in front of me, but it's like maybe Wes remembers he has a, a library of poetry in his mind, um, in his heart. It says, to s- the great there's day, to see thing. the great day. Yes, yes. There's Say only it. one thing, one vital thing. The great day that dawns, the light that fills the world, is the only thing. Yeah, it's the, the one great thing, the light that dawns, the light that fills the world, to see that. This morning I saw that. So, you know, just appreciating these things that are given to us, this is, uh, it's also an antidote to some of the wanting and lusting after things and people and, you know, just these things that plague us. So, um, so to step back, and I know Betsy was teaching you not to lean way back when you're sitting. It's hard to be in full awareness when we're <coughs> leaning back like this. It kind of invites another state, doesn't it? I can feel it even just now. But try it now if you're sitting up and just close your eyes for a moment and pull your, just move your body back a quarter of an inch, just a half an inch. And then take a breath. You can try it again since just a quarter of an inch. And feel how that stepping back just a little bit relaxes the body, relaxes the mind. The 13th Zen master, Dogen Zenji, called it taking the backward step. That instead of going out and looking for experience, 
seeking experiences, whether it's special states of mind in meditation or special beautiful walking walking path or, you know, specially yummy morsel of whatever Matt and Derek have cooked up for us. Instead of seeking experience, to just step back into that state of receptivity. And we're focused. We're alert. It's not that leaning all the way back and just sort of drooling out into, yeah, we're receptive, but we're not very alert. It's, it's, it's another way of practicing the second mindfulness training to receive the moment and appreciate what's given. And then the third one has to do with, um, well, it could be either truth-telling or sexual misconduct, but I'm going to go right to sexual energy. So we refrain from acting out sexually in any way, including flirting and, you know, putting that pretty little pine cone in somebody's shoe or, you know, we just don't do those things. We restrain ourselves. We refrain, even though we might really feel like it. Um, and so the other way of, of practicing mindfulness in this area is to really allow ourselves to feel the energy when it arises, to not try to um, reject it or shove it away, but to be aware of what may have been a bit rejected or suppressed in us. And if this is an area, you know, it's an area that is there's so much pleasure and so much pain associated with it. If it's an area where there's been trauma and pain, then to just offer some tenderness to the feelings around that. Um, the Buddha really had, he, he had an experience when he was young of pleasure. It was not sexual pleasure, he was a little boy, but he experienced a moment of, maybe it was many moments, but he was under a rose apple tree, he was out with his dad, and you know, that that incredible feeling, if you've ever, you know, if you've had a good enough parent and you got to have some time alone with them. I just remember, so I remember the times of getting to be with a parent without my brother and sister and how great it felt. So he was having that moment. He was out with his dad. He was, his father was um, doing some business with the farmers and he was sitting under the rose apple tree and he just slipped into that state that children can touch to, that's just carefree and present and and light-hearted, and, and yet quiet. And we've all experienced it, maybe lying down, looking up under a tree. And the mind is not, it's just not very active. It's not, it's not troubled by anything. It's just, um, and kids, of course, are, their lives are more, they're less mediated by thought than ours. So he was having that kind of moment, and and later he thought of it when he had been training and pushing himself and practicing all these austerities and starving, and and it he had a memory of that moment, and he thought, you know, that that didn't hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. That pleasure that I experienced under the rose apple tree, that didn't it didn't harm me. It didn't harm anybody else. What was wrong with that? Nothing. 
and he began to practice in a different way. And I think that where our sexual energies are, are um, when we consider these energies, the energies themselves are quite pleasurable. They are the energy of uh, living tissue, you know, of life itself, the um, electricities and of life itself. And what happens is what what we do in our minds with those energies and what our culture has conditioned us often to think and do with those energies in our minds. So when we're sitting and this comes up, we can really feel it's a kind of playfulness, can be beauty, that can draw us out of being preoccupied with ourselves and then just to notice what happens with that. And that, too, becomes a part of our full awareness of our humanity, both the beautiful aspects, the big mind that can just feel all of life, you know, birthing, mating, dying, all of that happening. And then the small mind that gets completely identified with, I want him, you know, whatever, her, whoever it might be for you. But to just have full awareness of all of it. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I've talked so much. And I have, all right, I'm going to like fast forward a little bit here. I just looked at the time. So much for our short Dharma talks. Um, but I'm not going to go on a long time, Wes and Grove. The last thing I want to say about the sexual energy is that we understand that with mirror neurons that all energies, actually, uh, we respond to each other. We are attuned to each other. So how you keep your mind in your sitting actually affects your neighbors. And I don't mean it that you should now start to feel stricken and guilty if you're you know, just in one of those obsessive loops that happen. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it's not that precise. But there is uh, a kind of sense of each other's energies. And so to take good care of being aware of our energies is a way of also being really compassionate and taking good care of each other. And when we're aware that we've maybe taken a nosedive into a less than healthy state or less than uh, useful state of mind, to be aware and to use our acceptance that loving awareness, to be a little tender with ourselves. And if we can't do it for ourselves, we can do it just realizing that that'll help our neighbors too. You know, that that we um, we uplift each other through the permeability and shared sensibility of our beings. So this fourth training of not lying, um, if we look at it as appreciating the truth, um, Ram Dass's guru, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba, said, you know, if you always tell the truth, you won't have to ever be afraid. I thought that was a very interesting statement. Um, because it, if we extend it to what is mindfulness, that we, if we always tell ourselves the truth of what's happening, and if we can be honest with ourselves about that, then we really don't have to be afraid of our own minds. There's a kind of fearlessness and courage to be 
to tell ourselves the truth of what's going on at any given moment. And since we don't have to identify with it and make it a story about how good or bad of a person